Hello, and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me on today's episode is Sally Alata, CEO and founder of Agility Health and Agile Videos. Sally is a thought leader in the space of business agility and measurement, for which we share a passion as we see both as critical to driving innovation. Sally is such an engaging speaker and has been advising top executives of leading global organizations. It was a pleasure to sit down with her, learn more about her journey and about her learnings. So with that, let's get started. Hello, Sally, and uh, welcome to the Project to Product podcast. How are you? I'm good, Mick. Thank you so much for inviting me. My pleasure. I, I had to invite you because I've, over, over the last couple of years, I've just been encountering the work and the footprint of your work more and more in many organizations. And I think that uh, we've seen a lot of organizations adopting Agility Health, the, your, your platform for measurement and continuous improvement. And uh, I think a lot of people also, of course, know you from your Agile videos. But before we get into all of that and kind of our shared passion for metrics and, and measurement that we'll talk about here, can you just tell us how, you know, just how this journey started for you? How, how did you end up here? How did you end up uh, being so passionate about these topics? Sure. Thank you. I am originally from Sudan in Africa. So for people that don't know me, I was born in Sudan. I lived with my mother in Scotland in Edinburgh. I used to have a Scottish accent. I've lost that over the years. Um, my mother was getting her PhD and we then moved to Saudi Arabia. I graduated from high school, from an American school. And when I graduated, my mom's like, where do you want to go, Sudan or America? And I was like, okay, really, mom? Of course, America, the US. So I came here when I was 17 years old and I've always had this vision of being able to live the American dream and honestly change the world, make a very big impact on the world. So I always say I'm a young girl from Africa who has very big and bold dreams. And that is how I started my company. I did graduate from an NIS degree, Management Information System. And so I'm a, I'm a very technical person. I was a software engineer and a developer and architect for many years and found that I have a passion for training and educating and you know teaching people new things. I like to take big, very big, complex problems and simplify them and visualize them. And I think a combination of all those different things brought me to being an entrepreneur and starting my own company about 12 years ago. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's quite the story. And did you, so tell me, when did you actually start getting interest in, in technology? Were you still in Sudan or in Edinburgh or where did that start? You know, my mother says when I was in Edinburgh and I was like six years old is when I had my first laptop and I learned how to program. Like I really, I really, really? loved programming. And yes, like it was the only they gave you like this big paper and you basically like wrote all of the code from that paper. And then like a game would be on yes. the, you know, the laptop would turn into a game. So um, I've had a passion for computers and engineering and all of that for many years. Um, so, you know, I think it just came naturally to me. And it's a field. I like fields that seem complex, but solve big problems in the world. And so that's why I really got into it. Wow. Yeah. For, so you were way ahead of me because I, my first laptop it was a Texas Sinclair. It, it had actually no memory. So I had to get, just learn basic. It was, and it was when I uh, was uh, uh, immigrating out of Poland and into Canada. So a little bit of a similar journey there because the, the programming and trying to make games with, with mixed success <laughs> back then <laughs> was uh, definitely got me interested in, you know, in what you could do with, with software, with technology. So then yeah. did you, so how did you start as a, when did you start actually taking de development more seriously? And because I can see it, I can imagine how sort of the, the sort of 
things that we all experience as developers, as people who've worked very closely with technology or with teams, quickly turn into a passion for for change, for training, and for transformation. So. Yeah, when I was when I started, um, I was an intern um, doing PL SQL and COBOL development, and then I, I learned Java and started programming. One of my leaders, one of my managers, said, "I think you're a great you're great at teaching people, so I want you to start delivering some training classes for us." And then we worked. Um, I moved into a consulting company that did a lot of work for IBM and delivered training training for IBM. I just realized that educating people and simplifying complex topics. And, and sometimes I'd be the only girl in the room and sometimes I'd be the only, you know, mixed girl in the room. And, but I didn't really care Mick. like all these things really didn't matter to me because I was so passionate about the topic. And I always felt like if I can help people understand, you know, how to develop, how to program. I did a lot of um, training around Java and EJBs and servlets, all these very oh technical gosh, yeah. uh, things at the time. I know. And I used to love it. Um, I used to it, love EJBs too. I know. I know people kept loving EJBs. <laughs> love EJBs and why? <laughs> no but really that's, loved that's EJBs a different story. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, slowly, slowly, as I worked in that field, I started to meet people. It was actually a local company here called Farm Credit Services, where they told me about Scrum and Agile. And to be honest with you, I just it was like love at first sight because a lot of the challenges that I saw in the technology world was around collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, business and technology working together you know, teams being very oriented on results and working together, actually having fun and just agile and scrum at that time seemed to kind of address all of that. So I quickly went and got certified and, and then decided, I think I'm just going to focus on this organizational transformation and helping teams do what they do better. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm good at. That's my passion. It was very hard to leave the technology world and make a, a decision that you're not going to be technical anymore and you're going to be in the transformation space. But I felt like all of that before was my foundation for this. You know, all of yeah. my ability to learn how to train and, and know, understand technology would help me in my next career. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean because, you know, getting further from technology, is a, it's a harder thing to do. But when you realize the sort of impact that you can make on, exactly. you know, not just, not just the code base, but all these hundreds or thousands or these days, tens of thousands of people creating these code bases, it, is a, it, it becomes a, a pretty amazing thing to, to be able to do. And very frustrating sometimes as well, of course. So, so. <laughs> Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what you've learned in, in those many years as you know you started seeing that I think a lot of us did see the potential that Scrum, and it really was Scrum. I know f- for you, for me, it was at first it was XP just working on a team, but then the bigger impact that Scrum could have and how quickly it could spread across an organization and, and basically start dialing in these ways of working and start allowing teams to become a bit more collaborative and predictable with, with other stakeholders. So I'd love to hear about your experiences with that journey and then uh, lead us into, you know, where you think we are today. Yeah, I was very lucky in that the 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 I worked closely with the CIO here in Nebraska for Blue Cross Blue Shield Nebraska. Her name is Susan Courtney, and I always say she's a mentor. And just very lucky to find somebody like that, an executive who has a vision and who's bold and willing to take some big steps to transform their organization. And and I think you know her giving me a chance for several years. And we've already been doing this with mother companies, but a lot of companies they 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 have you come in and help them for a little bit and then go. And, and then you never see the lasting results. But at Blue Cross Blue Shield Nebraska, that was sort of, I would say, my first end-to-end case of what does it look like when the team and the business leaders and the executives, and it doesn't matter where you are within the organization, are adopting agile ways of working. And, and that transformed me in that I started to, I, mean, I already believed in Scrum and Agile at the team level. 
But for me to see how do you take large initiatives, large programs, hundreds of people, how do you turn around a multi-million dollar project and actually, you know, make sure that it delivers? It was it was no longer theory. It became very practical. And, you know, um, she I remember she always said Agile is not about post-it notes and stand-ups. It's, it's a new way of thinking and it's a mindset shift and it's about people and culture. So I learned from her a lot about, you know, transforming leaders, transforming people, hearts and minds. So I would say that's really where it started for me is just being a believer. One of the problems I saw was I wasn't able to explain to Susan if it's working, if it's not working in a quantitative way. I felt it was working. We all felt and knew it was working, but you know, we almost had to have all the coaches on the ground talking to all the various teams to know where the problems were at. And I think you don't have that problem when you've got five to 10 teams, but you have 50 to 100 to 1,000 teams the problem of, okay, we're doing this, but how well are we doing this? And are we getting better or not? And where is it that I should focus my energy? It becomes very difficult to, to answer. That is what led me to say, I want, I think this is going to big. I'm, I'm very, you know, obviously strategic and innovative, but I felt like that's going to be a problem for other companies that are transforming is how can I measure where we are and how can I improve using quantitative data to help me understand. So that's where Agility Health came from. When was that? When did you get inspired by the CIO of BCBS? 2009. 2009. 2009 is when I started my own company. I started um, with them even before that uh, with Blue Cross Blue Shield. So, but we started my own company in 2009 and, and then began to see the, you know, the full transformation unfold. And I think 2013 is where we had really scaled agile and it became sort of a way of working and servant leadership and all of that. And I built the agility health platform in 2014 was the first release of it. Okay. Amazing. So I think what you're saying is I think so closely related to what well, I'm sure so many listeners and certainly I'm been so interested in, which is that agile over the last two decades has you know felt like a solved or become a solved problem at the team level. Mostly I think we'll continue improving and improving practices and tools and, and methodologies and uh, frameworks around that, but but bringing this to the business, this last decade has had so much mixed success. I think so. I think you. It sounds like you were able to engage with a large organization closely and and actually help get them to that notion of business agility. But we're still at the I think point in time where so many organizations, you know, to your point, they actually don't know where they are. So all of these initiatives have happened. All of these large transformations have been put in place, but it's very hard for everyone to say, like you said, without talking to every team and every coach in terms of how we're doing and getting a whole bunch of potentially inconsistent answers and inconsistent ways of, of, of sensing on whether there's more value and better outcomes being delivered or, or not. So what has been really interesting to me about your approach recently is I think, you know, how, how seriously you, know, you took this, you know, this need for metrics and measurement and the study that you actually put in place to better understand that. So I'd love for you to, to take us through that, how you, how, actually why, why did you do this? Tell us a bit about the study and, and, and why you ended up there. Well, you know, we have so much metrics in Agility Health now, and we had focused for many years, like you said at the beginning, on team agility. And so we have one of our radars is called Team Health. So we measure how healthy is this team? How are they doing in terms of their maturity, which is the practices and the behaviors? And then is that leading to performance, which is the quantitative metrics? And when we first grew up, when we first built Agility Health, we didn't have quantitative metrics. It was all qualitative. And about five years ago, we added quantitative metrics. So I said, okay, guys, we need to pause. We need to see what we can learn from this data. So the why was I just strongly felt like there's a correlation 
you know, and I wanted to ask the question of show me high performing teams within agility health teams that really were able to achieve, you know, flow, quality, predictability, these actual quantitative metrics. What correlations did it have to their maturity? What were the areas that they absolutely invested in that drove to that performance? And so the study covered 46,000 team members that were already within Agility Health, you know, across, you know, many, many companies that are, that are customers of Agility Health, large enterprises. And we looked at only the quantitative and the qualitative data correlation. And we basically tried to answer the question of for each one of our quantitative performance metrics, which we have five of them, predictability, time to market, value delivery, quality and responsiveness to change. What were the top five drivers of that, predictors of that? And so that was fascinating for each one of them to see. And then when I looked at all of them, I said, okay, there was a lot of those drivers that were the same. They kept repeating themselves. So I'm like, okay, that's going to be low hanging fruit. It feels like if a company can just invest in those, you know, because they kept repeating themselves, they really impact performance quite a bit, then at least we have sort of that, instead of gut feel transformation, we can say, you know, at the foundation level, you should really invest in these practices, because we now know, and we actually went back and said, show me all of the teams that were highest maturity in these practices, did they really have better performance? And they were 47, there were 37% higher performing than teams that did not. So we were able to quantify that teams that invested in these practice were 37% higher performing from a quantitative perspective than teams that didn't dot. And I was honestly astonished about some of these top practices that showed up. Do you mind me sharing some of them with, with, yeah, I would love to dig into those because I, uh, but tell us, you actually hired a university as well to do this. Just tell us a bit about how you set yes. this up. Is this oh, a, yeah. a very we did substantial not do this on our study? Own. Yeah. Yeah, University of Nebraska at Omaha has an org psych division, organizational psychology division. We had hired them seven years ago, actually, to do what we call quantitative correlation analysis and look at question validity, because some of our questions that we ask need to be valid from a physical analysis perspective. And so we hired them back again. So this was their second statement of work with us to do that. And um, Kevin, who's a, who's a PhD graduate from there, is the one that really helped us along with the, with the dean for the UNO org psych division. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, to add that kind of rigor to it. I'm obviously a fan of that. Yeah. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. And I learned a lot about the way the approach that they did it and, and, and the, you know, the correlation and the way that he would talk about it is some, something called stepwise regression analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, using uh, all of the weights, we're using um, an unstandardized regression coefficients. There's a lot of stuff he put into it. For me, I'm a business person, so I just looked at the end result and I was really excited to see some of the insights that we got out of that. So yeah, so let's let's dig into those. So tell me, maybe let's start with where you were, like the, the biggest surprises to you, because I think those are always uh, some of the best learning. So, You know, the number one was not a surprise because it's very much around a specific agile practice that really drives team performance and that ended up being weekly iterations. So, you know, teams that had a strong maturity around planning on weekly iterations, you know, two-week sprints, mm-hmm. planning and, and, and delivering on two-week sprints had the highest performance. So that did not surprise me at all because I expected some of these agile, you know, practices to show up. Generalizing specialist was number two, and that is around T-shaped individuals. So that was cool because what that meant is that, you know, having people not specialize in one thing, but allowing them to learn, um, you know, be specialized in something, but learn other skills around it so they can help the team as needed was, this was evidence that that practice, that cultural practice that we've always advocated for in Agile makes sense. The other ones that showed up on the list was the creativity and innovation. 
that was my pleasant surprise, to be very honest with you. I did not, we've always talked about creativity and innovation. We've always talked about how important it is for agile teams to be empowered, to make decisions, to solve the problems. Like, give me the problem, don't give me the solution, and allow the teams to figure out the how. But the fact that creativity and innovation actually was ranked number four there, teams being able to empower it, I really love. That was one of my ahas and my surprises. Planning and estimating was not a surprise for me because, again, think about that one along with weekly iteration. It just talked about teams that have the rigor of knowing how to break down epics and stories into smaller chunks and get them done within, you know, two week or one week sprints were higher performing than other teams. That totally made sense. And then the last one, number five, was self-organization. That was a surprise because, again, this was more of a cultural value and it also related to empowerment and self-organization is about delegating decisions down to the team um, and enable them to manage their own work and not dictating to them. So my two biggest surprises was creativity and self-organization both had that empower the team to solve the problem. Don't tell them what to do. We've always known that, you know, you, we, we've coached that for years, but having quantitative metrics now that shows me that that actually has led to high performing teams. I was like, oh my gosh, this is gold. Love it. We finally have an answer that people should, you know, enable teams to self-organize around their work. I remember seeing something on the roles and clarity as well. Is, was that yes. related? Roles and expectations and size and skills. So the other two that came after that was we also included, you know, not just what drives performance, but what drives teams happiness and confidence of the product owner in the team. And so a few more showed up over there, which is clarity on roles and expectations, people knowing who is doing what, and then the teams having the right size and skills and stability were also another big driver. So it's... Uh, it was just exciting to see some of this. And we incorporated this now within the platform so that when teams are assessing themselves and they see that you know quality is low or predictability is low, some of these drivers from this research and study is now within the platform itself. They can see, okay, this is what I need to work on if I really want to improve this. Right. And then so I think, yeah, so I think we're, we're all after improving the, the flow, the outcomes that teams produce. But of course, I think the key, your key findings are what, what are some of the inputs to that, right? What are some of the leading indicators of teams that actually... Um, able to self-organize in a way to minimize their dependency, let's say, to accelerate their flow, which we know that then turns, in, at least from the data that, that that we've been collecting, that actually drives better happiness, better engagement, better outcomes. So, and I really like how you've got this at just a very fine-grained level with with just this this really impressive data set. So, now that you've got this, can you just, I'd love to hear some about how you actually see it being acted on at, at organizations that you work with. So, you know, the the data's there. You've, we've got these, you know, really neat spider charts and the, and the rest. Take us through an organization that, let's say, um, was in a, and it can be a larger one or a smaller one. It'd be, it'd be good to get a sense for size, but one that you actually saw do the right things with the data with with these kinds of insights. How do they approach it? Um, what have you seen as the sort of the success patterns of creating this roadmap for improvement for change? Because I think one of the things that I know is is tricky at a lot of these organizations is they're, they're getting these metrics, getting these data, and then the teams have no time to act on it. The teams get then additionally frustrated that, okay, you know, we shared our data with you, but but nothing's changing. The bigger the bigger picture, we gotta let's take let's go up a level before we go down to the team level, is our goal and our objective is to enable business agility and enterprise business agility within the transformation. And again, I'll just remind people when I say business agility, it's not about agile. Business agility, the definition is the ability to respond to change, learn and pivot deliver at speed and thrive in a competitive market because gone are the days where big companies eat small today, fast companies eat the slow. 
So we always have to keep that in the back of our mind is our objective from all of this is to enable business agility and help teams achieve outcomes. In order for us to do that, you know, we have to invest in team agility, which is what we just talked about, you know, measuring and assessing where the teams are at right now, helping teams identify obstacles that are that are blocking them. What we do within Agility Health is we really create a culture where teams themselves commit to improvement within each iteration. So they have a backlog of features they have to develop, but they have two or three things in the next quarter that they're going to do to improve themselves. The key to success at the team Actually, level is... I'm sorry to interrupt you. I think that's such a key point. And then, and then we'll continue. But the I think having improvement on the roadmap and you know channeling you know, Gene's Phoenix project, Gene Kim's Phoenix project here, uh, that the improvement of daily work is even more important than the daily work because of course it makes the daily work better, uh, more impactful, uh, and more engaging, uh, and more joyful. How how do you so how do you actually do that? Because you, you're providing them with this input. How do you get it on the roadmaps? How do you and then maybe this, this is going to get back to your point on organizational support, but but can you just dig a dig well, a bit remember- deeper into that? we don't run surveys like running surveys and, and just gathering data from surveys is a very old school of, of continuous improvement. The way that you, you do these assessments for those teams is facilitated retrospective. So remember we certify people. And the reason we do that is because these are very important conversations you're facilitating with the team. Once a quarter, the team is identifying their problems. The team in the same session make are committing to action. They're building an improvement backlog immediately from the data. And I'm just sharing that because a lot of people don't realize they think we're just setting out surveys and gathering data and creating yeah. fancy dashboards. That's a very old school way. And I actually think it's really because metrics without action is worthless data. Yeah. So we also ask the team in the same session, in the same team health retrospective to identify one thing that leaders can do to help you optimize your flow of value. What's one obstacle that's getting in your way that's beyond your control, that if leaders could remove for you, you would flow faster, you would be higher performing. So now what you've got is this activity that's been consolidated into this two and a half hour session. The teams are assessing where they are. They're having a very open, honest, elephant in the room conversation about how they're doing. They are committing to two, three things they're going to do to get better. And they're identifying one thing for organizational leaders and managers to help them. I've now got gold in terms of data because I now know, you know, I've already put them on the path to improvement, but now I got to come to the managers and leaders. And this was the, the gap for us for several years. I can't tell you how long it's taken us to make sure that companies are invested in their management layer, that middle layer knowing that their new role has changed, Mick. The role of managers before, which is to move people around, reprioritize their work, tell people what to do, task manage, you know, that's gone. Today, this is their backlog. All of these impediments and obstacles that came from the team, that is now the new management backlog. So I've always said now managers need to use Agile. I want them to demo back to the team once a month what obstacles they've removed for them. I want them to measure their velocity. I want them to commit to continuous improvement. They should be, you know, focusing on talent development and all of that. So I just think the role of the manager is a very big part of the success of any transformation. I think we've forgotten about them. We've influenced the teams. We've influenced the executives. Everybody's on board. But the managers are like, yo, you just disrupted my role. Like my entire existence of what I used to do before is different, but we haven't given them a new job, a new role. And so with with us, with an agility health, I got a big backlog for them of things that they can work on to help the organizational improve in order for team agility to be a reality. Okay, so you just said that improvement is the most important thing on the on the manager's backlog. Yes, continuous improvement, removing obstacles and talent development. So identifying skill gaps and improving them, which is going to be on that backlog and can, and removing these obstacles that are hindering flow. Yes, that's the number one. If you're not working on that, 
I want to know what else is more important. Yeah. I mean, I understand there's, you know, administrative stuff and all of that, but you, you got to at least tell me that 50 to 60% of your capacity is on removing roadblocks. And those could be anything. They could be technical roadblocks. They could be talent and skill. They could be cultural roadblocks. They could be agile and process. All of those for us are just obstacles or growth opportunities. That is awesome. And I could not agree more. And I, and I think it, obviously that systematizing that somehow in terms of actually providing a cadence to it, providing measurement to it, you know, providing a, a feedback loop of whether that improvement generated the right outcome for the teams and, and for improving the flow. That's amazing. So now you're saying it's the, I'm going to keep digging into this, but is, is it the, the first line manager's job, the second line manager's job, the third line manager's job? Who's, whose job is it? Teams are organized into product lines. Product lines are organized into portfolios. Portfolios make up business lines, right? So think about just the the team, team of team structure. Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to resolve problems for a team that is within a product line, then it's probably going to be the, the direct managers of those teams along with an agile coach, for example, or a change agent at that level. If I'm trying to remove obstacles that are at the portfolio level, it's going to be a different group of people. It might be the director or the VP. So what we have in Agility Health is not just the metrics, but these what we call them growth items. We have them at different levels. And so team level growth items are going to be managed by the team. Organizational growth items are probably more managers of the teams. And then enterprise growth items are going to be more senior level people. But the point is everybody roll up your sleeve and help us, you know, instead of asking me for fancy dashboards, which we've got them, every dashboard, and by the way, I have to tell you, I want to give kudos to Troy McGinnis. Troy McGinnis was the, the, the Agile Metrics guru who helped us design our dashboards. And he's taught me that every dashboard has to answer the question of what is the data telling me? So what? Is it yeah. good or is it bad? Now what? What should I do about it? And that's that's the key there is what should I do about it? Yeah, Troy. Troy is great. He's uh, he he definitely he was one of the first people around the flow framework. By <laughs> was Troy going? Troy, you know, Troy, would this have worked? Would this would this be helpful? Exactly. Yes, to he's drive amazing and he's hilariously yeah. funny. He is. He's a funny <laughs> guy. So yeah, yeah, we should we should invite Troy um, to the podcast. So yeah, he I think he's and he's influenced quite a few people. So okay, the, the, so the growth items I actually don't know as much about. So can you give some examples of the growth items? Oh wow, yeah, growth items are written as stories. So just like you know. A regular user stories as a team, we want to do X, Y, Z, you know, so that ABC. So, so stories could be the same thing. For example, as a team, we want to improve our quality by increasing our test automation percent. So what's my acceptance criteria for that? We are going to have to have two other people be upskilled on automated testing. We're going to have to fix the, so these are considered acceptance criteria of what we're going to do to achieve that. I basically ask the team, you know, fast forward three months from now. What is it that's within you? You can't just say, I want to improve engineering practices. That's an epic. You can't just say, I want all of our teams to be more stable. Okay, that's like really big. Those mm -hmm. are epics. So yeah. just the same thing we learn about, you know, epics, feature stories, but we take that and we adopt it to um, growth items, which is what is something that is feasible that within the next month or two months you can actually do that will improve, improve the performance and the flow of this team. And how much do you rely on so with this? I think... It'd be great to have your sense, as and I think, as we all know, some teams are performing better, are you know have have better health. There's just a pretty big dynamic range. So, how much are you in terms of? And of course, there are different reasons for this, right? In some cases, it can be a whole bunch of technical data team is struggling with. In some cases, it's more organizational data and and, and these kinds of things. So, how much of uh, presumably some of these growth items are to help teams become you know higher performing, like some other teams within an organization? How much? 
how much are you seeing that? How much are you seeing that there's there's some great lighthouse teams, whereas you've, you've got a large number of teams lagging, and within these organizations, how much are you are you seeing that those those teams, for example, are continuing to prioritize the growth items more, whether other ones are continuing to you know basically function as feature factories and and drive up their debt rather than than focus on improvement. It's always the commitment from the leadership team to this in continuous improvement measure and growth program that makes a big difference. Okay. Yeah. So it's just like agile. If I bring agile bottom up and I tell a couple of teams to go get training and Hey, it's optional if you want to do it or not, you know, you're going to get different level results when it's just sort of, we can do it. We don't have to do it. But a lot of our programs, because a lot of large companies come to us, they're coming from a leadership perspective. And so it's a program. It's not, hey, we want to use this tool to run an assessment. And I always tell them, like, that's dead on arrival. But you are launching a continuous improvement measure and grow program. The leaders are communicating why we're doing this. The leaders are saying we're going to remove obstacles. When we have that kind of change management around it, there's a lot of adoption. There's a lot of excitement. We have to create psychological safety, Mick, because a lot of people are afraid of data and they think it's going to be used to punish or reward them. So my famous quote here is if you ever use data from Agility Health to punish or reward the teams, you'll never see the truth again. Um, We have such high quality data because the teams trust that this will be used. So I would say the teams that um, invest in the process and bake it into what they normally do, like a lot of teams that are using SAFE, for example, Scaled Agile, they have at the end of every PI, they have something called an inspect and adapt meeting. It's it's when they, so that is when they should be using Agility Health and doing those team health retrospectives within their own retro, that one hour retro that they schedule at the end of every PI, you know, use that time. So once they bake it in and it's not an extra thing that they're doing, it's not an afterthought, those are the teams that operationalize and honestly have a lot more success because they have a commitment to growth and improvement. So, yeah, and as I've been working with more senior leaders who I think, again, I completely agree with you. They're the number one thing they can do is, is actually drive a roadmap of improvement and create sense-making around improvement. I, I've seen a lot of organizations adopting OKRs, which I think is great. You know, I've been you know, using them for almost the entire lifespan of, of TASTOP. And there's been, I've found this, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, one of the most effective things I've seen adapted is to actually have an organizational, and this might be for a line of business, might be for a portfolio or a portion of the portfolio, but to actually have an, an OKR, an objective key result that has improvement in flow. So flow time, flow efficiency as, as a part of its measurement, right? Because that forces this cascade of what then I think I would hope turns into your growth items, however the, the teams do this. But without that high level organizational support and endorsement that allows teams to, pr- to prioritize that improvement, of course, what happens again is is, is the you know, the teams focus only on the other items on the backlogs. Then those back then get you know get inundated further. Whip and flow load grows grows even higher, and their ability to actually take down the back those backlogs goes down. So how do you and when you're speaking to more senior people how, like what? So that's been one of my strategies. It's like just make a KR. That's a flow metric. That's it. You just need to do it, or or your teams will continue to not have the, the space. And again, as you mentioned, safe puts this into the PI cycle. There's different strategies. What what have you been? What what have you found successful to convince leadership and senior leadership of how important this is? Because that that is one of the biggest challenges I know we're seeing in the data in the industry as well as you know as as we're collecting it is the portion of times that teams spend on all the other backlog items versus the ones they actually spend on the ones that drive improvement and flow. And that's because of course they're overloaded. And there's no yeah. you know no 
time for improvement, which of course is a, is a self-defeating issue. Well, it's kind of what we just talked about. Teams have a feature backlog and they have an improvement backlog, right? We just, we agreed to that as a principle, which is a must have. So now we got to say, how do we make sure that that aligns with the leadership of the executive roadmap? So I want to take you a step back before I answer that question, because I think, so my vision from Agility Health has always been way bigger than just team agility and team health radar, right? That's just, that's one small portion of it. My vision has always been, how can I help an organization see how the maturity of their teams is a leading indicator for the performance of the teams, yeah. which is the quantitative metric. And that those two are leading indicators for the outcomes and the OKRs yeah. that the team accomplish. Exactly. Okay, so I just want to paint this picture, which is maturity, performance, outcomes. And each one is a leading indicator. And the only metric we really should care about at the end of the day is the outcomes, the business outcomes that we're accomplishing. Um, and so Agility Health as a platform has always had those three metrics. You can visualize them next to each other. Maturity data we get from our radars Performance data we get by integrating, which I think we're going to be integrating with TaskTop here fairly soon, which is exciting to be able to pull some of that performance data. And then we have an outcome and an OKR dashboard. When we are working with executives to talk about outcomes and OKR, we say there are two types of outcomes you should be creating business outcomes and transformation outcomes. Business outcomes are those almost like the features for the team. Those are the things we must get done. We need to increase this. We need to you know, roll this out. We need to have higher level of customer adoption in this market. Uh, we need to make sure our sales you know, or our conversion rates are a bit. I mean, these are all like AIR, you know, the acquisition, activation, revenue, retention, referral, product yeah. kind of metrics. But equally, what are the transformation metrics or the improvement metrics and outcomes that you're going to, and I think that what you'll see is a lot of the portfolio business leaders are trying to drive the business outcomes, but then you'll have the transformation leaders that are supporting that portfolio are also, you know, from an executive perspective, you know, basically leading the transformation outcomes. And those are all like the ones that you, you know, your five flow outcomes, you know, the flow efficiency, the flow distribution, all of those happiness, you know, quality, all those things, basically doing what we do better. If I agree with you, if we don't create outcomes around it, then how are you going to prioritize identifying the gaps related to it and then removing it? If my entire outcome base is like a big feature list of here's all the work you need to get done, you'll be doing it slowly and ineffectively and you just will never pause, you know, slow down enough to, to speed up. So that's sort of my answer there, which is tying maturity to performance to outcomes and making sure at the outcome level, we've got both types of outcomes, business outcomes and transformation outcomes that are changing the ways of how we do our work. Yeah, and I think you're putting it so clearly because I, 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 this is exactly what I'm saying as well. Right? Is that you need to be tracking all three and then the fact that they're leading indicators of each other is, is critical. And of course, then, then, then you can create a feedback loop from that. So I think those, and this is, this is exactly what we're seeing when, when we look at the value streams for flow metrics. Now, the flow metrics don't, don't track maturity, right? They're, so they're just an outcome themselves of maturity, just like business results are an outcome of, of the flow of what, of what was delivered, the value that, that was delivered by a team. So I think that, you know, what definitely what, I guess what you're, tell me if you agree with this, but basically there's, it's, it's hard to map them one-to-one, -one, of course, but actually having a clear correlation from maturity to performance to business outcomes actually allows leaders to create this feedback loop. And then of course, the hope is to further invest in, in improving and driving maturity and, and scaling those practices. Yeah. Well, and actually aligning them to each other visually is exactly what we yeah. are doing within Agility Health. You can click. So we, the way that we organize the data is by team, team of team, product line, portfolio. But you can click at any level and say, what's the maturity of this group? Click over what's the performance. Click over what are the outcomes. 
And so you can clearly see teams that are higher maturing, higher performing are going to be producing better outcomes. But I do want to say something because some people have said, can I have a high performing team that is not achieving the right business outcomes? And the answer is yes. Yeah. If you don't have the right product management structure above them, or if your product manager portfolio manager is not business savvy and not actually doing the right opportunity assessment, the right product discovery, the right market research, you know, if you give team a hundred features to get done and you tell them those are what we need, but at the end of the day, they don't have any impact on the market. It means you're not doing product discovery. You're not doing design thinking. You're not getting the voice of the customer. So, you know, teams are in charge of delivery and they can help you with product discovery. But I do put you know, responsibility on the portfolio leadership team and the product leadership teams to make sure that product discovery becomes part of the DNA of this organization all the way down to the team level. But it's a practice that they do to make sure they're building the right thing because it's never about the quantity of work that's getting done, Mick. It's about, is it impactful? You know, we did some work with a large, you know, um, financial company and they, the problem that they brought to us is they said the top of the funnel is too big too much work coming in. Mm -hmm. So the teams are overwhelmed. And I said, well, we got, we're going to have to apply outcome-based planning and product discovery to solve that problem because you've got too much stuff that's unvalidated. It's all idea, everybody's idea, but you haven't validated any of it. So our goal was to reduce the top of the backlog, but make sure that it's coming in with the most valuable ideas. Yeah, exactly. And I think the, you know, sometimes the, I have noticed leaders get lost in this is that, you know, they can draw a straight line from performance to outcomes or something. But I think the way you put it is, is exactly the way I think about it, is that you track both. There's a correlation. There, there might not be a direct line of causation. causation. Right? Yeah, exactly. You're putting a, the most elaborate user story in every single business epic and the like. But in aggregate, these, you know, one needs to drive the other. And this is the whole point of having these, these metrics and these leading indicators. And you know, I've, seen, you know, I've seen different examples of what you said, where you've got a high-performing team who's not driving outcomes because what's happened is the market's changed. Right? There's, been, there's a disruption. There's a whole new kind of competition in the market. And even though the team is doing some amazing work, uh, the you know the basically the the users and the and the customers are going elsewhere because there's now a, a whole new competitor, right? Now that doesn't mean that you don't want to continue driving the kind of high performing teams. It just means exactly I think what you said is to, to establish that that feedback Your loop. strategy. Yeah, your market strategy. Yeah. You have to figure out how are you going to disrupt before being disrupted, and who are your strategic. And I'm honest with you, some of the product managers and people that I know are too tactical. And so if you don't have anybody strategically looking out for how will we win in the market, you know, you might be falling behind. And if you're not experimenting on how you're going to win in the market and constantly listening to the voice of the customer, you might have a very high performing, you know, high velocity, high throughput team that is still not delivering what the market needs because you're not feeding them. You know, you're not even giving them the right vision or the right opportunity or the right things to work on. Yeah, exactly. And then I think the other thing I think I've seen, I'd love to get your feedback on, uh, that that I think is very effective is actually to understand what kind of market it is, right? So, and, and what kind of domain you're in. So I just, uh, uh, another podcast is from uh, Dave Snowden, right? Because I think for me, the Kinevan framework inspired me a lot. And there's just different, if you're in a market that has chaotic dynamics and domain that's chaotic, where things are changing so quickly, that what you said, basically that feedback loop you need between the team's maturity, the performance and the outcomes, and then potentially understanding, okay, what we now need, you know, someone with this kind of domain expertise on the team that we didn't have before and to augment, you know, pr uh, pr the, the design team or product management in this way, or to now master this, this new kind of stack, that feedback loop between those, those leading indicators, those metrics has to be so in, in a chaotic domain has to be so fast because you're acting before you can actually plan. Whereas if you're in the complex domain, 
or in the complicated domain, you know, maybe it can be a bit slower if you're delivering I don't know, payment technologies as, as one component of a massive portfolio of software. So I think that the thing I've been seen very effective is to make sure that these you're tying these metrics of, and the, and I think as you're saying these these three sets of metrics to the kind of market conditions and the kind of strategy that you're executing on, which means you need to understand them and you you need to understand them at the portfolio level. Yeah, and maybe that will just bring me to one of my final points here, which is the when a company comes to us and says, "Help me mature," team agility and team performance and team health is one of the radars that we have. But we normally also start with what we call the business agility radar. And that is more for the line of business leaders, the portfolio leaders, to help them assess to what extent have they matured product management, design thinking, outcome-based planning, organizational design, leadership and culture, digital transformation, have they invested in digital? The questions that we would ask there in the maturity assessment there is way different than the team level. You know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. so the point that I want to make is, you know, investing in maturity is something that should happen at every level of the organization. At the enterprise level, it should be about digital transformation and enterprise business agility. At the product level, it should be about maturing product management and potentially DevOps, right? At the team level, it's going to be about improving team health. At the individual level, role-based talent development. How do I get better in my role as a developer, as a scrum master, as a product owner, as a product manager? I believe that if you do that, if you create an engine where at every level of the organization, we are measuring and improving and using insightful data to lead us, then who's going to stop us? I mean, nothing can stop us anymore. So I'm, I'm just bringing that up because I don't want audience to listeners to come back and be like, oh, it's all about team health. No, team health is one, you know, that you should absolutely consider because I would say that's the base of all agility is teams. But what about your, you know, business agility maturity for your, for each portfolio? And one of our large customers now, the Federal Reserve, that's exactly what they're doing. So they're doing, you know, team health as a bottom up. They're doing EBA, enterprise business agility from a top down perspective. And then they're using that data to inform their strategy of where to invest. That's, yeah, that, that sounds like definitely a, a roadmap for success. So basically it is kind of self-similar at each level in terms of the, the as you said before, the, the growth items that you need to invest and the data that you collect, again, at, at this high level of, of abstraction. So, okay. So any, uh, we'll start to wrap up here. This is it's amazing. Any guidance to getting started or kind of scaling these initiatives? You know, how do you, what advice do you have for leaders who kind of have a sense that they're not, they're not getting the right kind of data um, on how make to get it a priority. Started. Just make, please, anybody who's listening, make continuous improvement, measurement, and growth a priority. It is not about gathering fancy data and getting better dashboards. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about everybody rolling up their sleeve, and you know, first of all, leveraging the right data, you know, which is maturity, performance, and outcomes, and then saying, where is it that I can help remove impediments and obstacles to increase your performance? So I think just investing in this whole domain of measurement and improvement and providing leadership oversight over it and leadership support and buy-in and never using the data to punish or reward the team. So please don't create a bonus structure for the executives that have the highest performing teams because then they'll be forced to say that they're high performing. So you want to create psychological safety. That's really my biggest advice is just get started with this, make it a priority, create psychological safety. Don't monkey with the data and use it the wrong way and punish. And you will see amazing results because I believe, Mick, that companies that are going to thrive are the ones that can outlearn other companies. It's not about your size anymore. It's about your ability to outlearn and outdeliver your competitors. And so this is now a world of learning, inspecting, adapting, and pivoting. Um, and it should be more data-driven as opposed to gut feel, which is what we've got right now. 
Yeah, I think those are your, your, your two awesome key points there, right? Is that you know, fast eats slow, and the only way to get faster is to, is to get faster at learning. Yes, exactly. And we will be, I think, the, for those already you know, doing a lot of this kind of inspection with Flowmetrics, Sally and I will be working on you know, better connecting uh, these maturity performance and outcome metrics to, to the Flowmetrics uh, as well. So uh, we'll, well, Sally, I, we, we have, we, I guess we have a little bit of work to do, but we have made some good progress connecting those. So if you could... Uh, any, yeah, any no, thoughts very, on that? very excited. It's going to be in our insights dashboard. We've already kind of uh, thought about where we'll, where will we bring them in, but it would really be at the team of team level. We have something called the insights dashboard and the organizational dashboard that sort of just summarizes everything. How are my teams doing? How are they doing overall from a flow perspective? And so we're excited to start investigating, you know, our APIs, your APIs talking to each other and how can we visualize it again at every level of the organization so the, the company can answer those questions and identify areas that they need to improve on. So you've been doing an amazing job um, in the industry as well, Mick. So thank you for all of the impact that you've made in the world of measurements, metrics, and honestly connecting, because you need to connect so much stuff to each other to make some of this actually happen. So kudos to the maturity of TaskTop so far. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I think, uh, yeah, we, it's uh, it's an important piece of it, but I think, as you said, and I think with your, you know, so your background, your intuition and everything you're doing around actually helping teams improve and learn and and train this is a it's amazing to to see so uh yeah thank you for all of your contributions as well any parting words or advice no just thank you thank you for for making time for me to speak on your stage here and um along with all the other amazing thought leaders and and we'll be back I'm, in my next podcast i want to talk about something not related to metrics at all like maybe i'll share my story of sudan next gen i have a nonprofit on the side where i'm helping my home country really sudan transform yeah and oh, i think that excellent. would be a great topic to just talk about yeah. you know how do we take our skills yeah as leaders as transformation leaders and help transform a country um, and help bring it out of poverty after a revolution in sudan so we'll have to talk no metrics next time Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I do keep going at the first podcast and one of my big inspirations was Claudia Perez. And she's, she challenges all of us, all, you know, thought leaders, all practitioners in, in IT and technology on how we can actually apply what we've learned to helping governments and, and countries and, and entire economies you know, function better and function better for their, yeah. for their citizens. So I would, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Sally. Thank you, Mick. You have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to Sally for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1 or Project Product. You can reach out to Sally on Twitter at Sally Alata via LinkedIn, or you can email her at sally at agilityhealthradar.com. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.